I should like to call your attention this evening to a paragraph in that 40th chapter of the book of the prophet Isaiah, which we have read together at the beginning. The paragraph that runs from verse 12 to verse 17. From verse 12 to verse 17 in the 40th chapter of the book of the prophet Isaiah. Who hath measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and meted out heaven with the span and comprehended the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who hath directed the spirit of the Lord or been his counselor hath taught him with whom took he counsel and who instructed him and taught him in the path of judgment and taught him knowledge and showed to him the way of understanding. Behold, the nations are as a drop of a bucket and are counted as the small dust of the balance. Behold, he taketh up the isles as a very little thing and Lebanon is not sufficient to burn nor the beasts thereof sufficient for a burnt offering. All nations before him are as nothing, and they are counted to him less than nothing and vanity. Now, in this uh, paragraph, we come to a new section in this great and mighty chapter. We've been looking together, those who attend here regularly, uh, for the last uh, seven Sunday evenings at this chapter and especially at the teaching from verse 1 to verse 11. Now there we have seen that the great theme of the Bible, the great theme in particular of the New Testament is stated in the form of a prophecy. God gave this vision, this revelation, this understanding uh, to his servant the prophet Isaiah. He gave him a message not only to comfort the people at the time being who are going to be carried away into Babylon and its captivity and an assurance that they would come back, but more than that, much beyond that, because the language is much too great to stop at that. The message was that there was a great and mighty deliverance and salvation to come into this world. And God gave him a view of the details. In other words, in the first 11 verses of this great chapter, we have a very perfect account and description of the gospel of the New Testament. It's a great message of comfort. It's a message of salvation. It's an announcement that our sins can be forgiven, that we can have a new start and a new life, that God hath given to us double for all our sins, showered his blessings upon us in Christ. And then it goes on to tell us how that Christ himself, the Son of God, is going to come. Behold your God, that's the message. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed. It's unusual, it's strange. It needs a new highway. Valleys must be exalted, mountains and hills must be brought low, a new way must be formed because of this new thing. And then you remember the prophet goes on to tell them to announce, the, the message goes on to tell the prophet to announce it without fear, to lift up his voice because of its transcendent character. And assurances are given that nothing can stop it and nothing can prevent it because it is the word of, the, of God which shall stand forever. 
It's not the word of men. It doesn't belong to men. Man's word is like himself. It's but as grass that comes and flowers and withers and dies. But this is the word of the Lord, the word of our God. And eight centuries later, it was all fulfilled in detail in the facts in connection with the coming and the life and teaching and death and resurrection of our blessed Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now that's the message. And that is the message that we have been considering together during those Sunday evenings. But here I say something new is introduced. He has made his great statement of the gospel and that's it. Now he goes on, and what's his object? Well, what he's trying to do here and from here to the end of the chapter is, he's trying to help us as we stand face to face with such an announcement, such a proclamation. For the fact of the matter is that mankind has always found it extremely difficult to believe and to accept the word of God. You read your Old Testament and you'll find that everywhere. God sends a message to mankind through his servants, but people stagger at it. You get it in individuals, you get it in nations. You get a man like, even a man like Abraham, who is called the friend of God. He's almost staggered by what God tells him. His wife was so staggered that she even laughed at it. And it's the same with many others. They ask for signs. They say, how can this be? Is this possible? And even when our Lord himself came into the world, the same thing happened, you remember? when the announcement was made to the father of the forerunner, Zacharias, he couldn't believe it. Even Mary, the mother of our Lord, herself couldn't believe it. The news was so staggering, they all asked the same question, how can these things be? Well now, that's, that question seems to have been raised, and here an answer is given to it beforehand. This is one of the great glories of the Christian message and of the Bible. God not only gives us his message, but he helps us to believe it. He deals with our doubts and our difficulties and our perplexities. And he answers our questions. He solves our problems. I don't hesitate to assert that. I don't hesitate to assert and to claim for the Bible that there is no conceivable objection or difficulty to believing the Christian faith but that you'll find it dealt with somewhere or another in the Bible itself. God has stooped to our weakness. He knows us so well. He anticipates our questions and our problems, and he deals with them in this extraordinary manner. Well, now, here I say that all that is taken up. Now we've had hints of that in the first 11 verses. Some of the difficulties have been hinted at there. But there, they were not really analyzed. They were not taken up and examined and dealt with one by one. But from this twelfth verse to the end of the chapter, the prophet takes them up one by one. He says, now what are your difficulties? Why do you stagger in unbelief at this proclamation? What is it that makes it difficult for you to believe this great message? And here I say he takes hold of them one by one. And I'm calling your attention to them because the difficulties are still the same. I'm never tired of saying this from this pulpit, that the most astonishing thing in the world tonight is this, that with such a message, with such a gospel, that mankind does not believe it.
The astonishing thing in a sense is that everybody in the world is not a Christian. Because this gospel offers us everything we ask for. We're all out for happiness. We're all out for peace. We all want to be happy. We are seeking joy. We're all out for security. We all want to banish war. Are not, all, are not those the things we're all seeking? My dear friends, those are the very things that are offered us in the gospel. And if only every person in this world tonight believed this gospel and were a Christian, all our major problems would be solved at once. And we should all be enjoying the very things we say we are craving for and longing for. It's all here, it's presented to us, and it's all offered us freely and for nothing. And yet it isn't accepted, is it? The Christians in this world tonight are a minority. The masses of the people won't have it. Why not? Well, it's still this old trouble, it's the old difficulty. The very difficulties that are taken up here by this prophet Isaiah. What are, what are these difficulties? Well, the first and the central difficulty, without, without, beyond, beyond any doubt or question, is this. That the very character and nature of the proclamation and its contents makes the whole thing seem to us to be quite incredible. That's the trouble. It just sounds too good to be true. That's what the average man says. He says, I'm a hard man, I'm a hard-headed man, a man of business, a man who believes in coming down to brass tacks. Now, he says, I, I, I can't accept things like that. It's, it's too marvelous, it's too wonderful. It seems to me to belong to the realm of fantasy and of fancy, uh, folklore, fairy tales. Oh, this marvelous idea of the God who descends and so on. No, no, says the modern man, life isn't like that, the world isn't like that. He staggers in unbelief because the thing I say seems to him to be quite incredible. Now that's the theme that is taken up here. It's a theme that is often dealt with in the Bible, in the Old Testament and in the New. The Bible tells us that beforehand. It makes a proclamation and an announcement that its own message is incredible to the natural man. That he just can't believe it. But fortunately for us, it doesn't stop at that mere assertion. It goes on to analyze the causes of this. And it explains to us why the gospel at first sight seems to be so incredible. Now then, the first thing it tells us is this that our failure to believe the biblical message, the message of the Christian gospel, the first cause of that is ultimately to be traced to this, that we do not appreciate the truth concerning the being and the character of God. That's the basic cause of trouble. It is our failure to realize the truth about God that accounts ultimately for all our other troubles. You see, we will persist in thinking of God as if he were one of ourselves, as if he were but a man. We will persist in thinking of what God does, as if he were but a human being acting. We always start with ourselves, with our measures, with our judgments, with our assessments. And our most fatal error of all is just this. 
that even when we come face to face with God, we bring all our own measures and measurements with us. And because God doesn't fit into them, we say we can't believe it and we reject it. That is the root cause of all our troubles and all our ills. Now, I could demonstrate this to you very easily. There are a number of different doctrines, as we all know, in connection with the Christian faith. And men and women stumble at almost every single one of them. Take, for instance, the doctrine of man himself. The Bible has got a very definite doctrine about men. But the modern world doesn't like the biblical doctrine about men. The Bible says that man is created in the image of God and that he's fallen from that because of sin and that all his troubles are due to that. Now man doesn't like that. He doesn't like to think of himself as a special creation of God. He doesn't like even to accept that great dignity that's placed upon him and the privilege that is given him. He prefers to think of himself as someone that has evolved painfully from some primitive slime. There's one instance. Then, uh, in the same way, people don't like the doctrine of sin. They say they can't accept it. There's biblical doctrine of sin, which tells us that it's due to pride and to man's arrogance, to his desire to be equal with God and his rebellion against God. The modern world doesn't like the very term sin. It tries to explain it away in terms of psychology. It says, oh, yes, that old idea of sin, it's so hateful. It, it, it refers to it as a weakness, a failure to develop, and so on. There is another doctrine which the modern world doesn't like, and likewise it doesn't uh, like the doctrine of repentance. It regards that as insulting to men. It doesn't like to be told that it's got to confess its sins, that it's got to acknowledge its transgressions. It doesn't like a hymn which says, vile and full of sin I am, I am all unrighteousness. They say that's not true. I'm not like that. They resent that. They're in trouble over the doctrine of repentance and sin and confession of sin and confession of need. And in the same way, they don't like the doctrine about the Lord Jesus Christ, about his person. They say they can't believe that uh, the eternal Son became flesh. They say Jesus was only a man. He wasn't God-man. They say they can't accept that. They can't follow that. And likewise with the doctrine of his death and with the doctrine of his salvation, the character of salvation as a new birth and something miraculous. Those are the great doctrines. And men and women, I say, stumble at every one of them. They say they can't believe them. They can't accept them. Why not? I'm suggesting the answer to you. The difficulty with respect to every single one of those doctrines is simply this, that they have started with a radical misconception and misunderstanding about God himself. If only we were right in our ideas about God, my friends, all these other things would simply be inevitable and our difficulties would vanish. If you and I only knew the truth about God, it wouldn't take us long to believe the biblical doctrine about man. If we only had some faint conception of God, there'd be no need to argue men to believe in sin. If we only saw ourselves as we are in the sight of God, why? We'd fly to repentance. 
And if we only understood, I say, something of the nature and the being of God and ourselves face to face with him, far from stumbling at the incarnation, we'd say, thank God for it. It's the only thing that can save us. And likewise with the death and with the great salvation. All our difficulties, all our troubles, stem from this central initial trouble that we are all wrong in our ideas and conceptions with respect to God himself. So you see, the Bible, knowing that always starts, when it deals with our difficulties, with the doctrine of God. Isaiah does it here. He stated his great evangel. Now then he comes to the difficulties. Listen to him. Who hath measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? What's he talking about? He's talking about God. At once he starts with God, because he know that, knows that that's the central trouble. My dear friends, we must always start with God. We mustn't start with ourselves, we mustn't start with salvation, we mustn't start with our needs, we mustn't start with anything else. If you do, you're certain to go astray. The first business of the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ is to talk about God. And isn't this where we've all gone astray, alas, the church herself oftentimes, as well as the world outside? Let us never forget that the Bible starts with God. In the beginning it says, God. Before it talks to you about your troubles and your problems and your failures and your needs, start with God, it says. Before you begin to start with your problems, you must be clear as to who you are and what you are. Where have you come from? What's life? What's the world? What is men? You're bound to go back to the beginning. And there's no other way of solving all our problems. There is nothing so terrible and so tragic in its results and in its effects as to take God for granted. But I suggest to you that that's what we're all tending to do. Let me ask a simple, plain question to those who've listened to many sermons. How often have you heard sermons about God? You see, no, we're interested in something that we want and something that we need. We start with ourselves. We're introspective. We're self-centered. Man is always revolving around himself. He is important. He's the center of the universe. But he isn't, my friends. It's God. And as I've been trying to show you, it's because God has been forgotten. That men and women don't see themselves in sin. They don't see their danger. They don't see the need of repentance. They don't see the need of the coming of the Son of God into this world. They see no real essential necessity for the death and the cross. All these are superfluous to them. And it's all due to this. They don't know God. Well, very well, then here we are reminded, I say, of the thing that must come first. The source and the fount of every other difficulty. We must start by coming face to face with God. And listen to what the prophet has to tell us about him. In this one paragraph, he reminds us of three of the things that are, of course, outstanding in the being and the character of God. I almost hesitate to speak on such matters, and yet it is my business to do so. 
What is the Bible? The Bible is first and foremost a revelation of God. It is that mankind may know God, that God has given his word. The world by wisdom knew not God. They failed to trace him in the flowers and in the animals and in nature and in creation. They should have done, but they failed. And because of that, God has given his word. And the first object of the Bible is to give us a knowledge of God. That we may see ourselves as we are and see our needs and see what God has done for us. So we start. What is the first thing we are told about him? The first thing the prophet emphasizes is the greatness and the might and the power of God. Listen to him in verses 12, 15, and 17. Who hath measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, and meted out heavens with a span, and comprehended the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains in scales, and the hills in a balance? Are you interested in poetry? There it is, at its sublimest. But it isn't only poetry, it's description, it's true. Then listen to him in the 15th verse. Behold, he says, the nations, and you notice the sarcasm, don't you? We all believe in the greatness of the nations, don't we? Our newspapers are shouting it at us every day. The nations of the world, there's the power in controlling the atomic bomb at the present time. If you want power, look at the nations. But listen, behold the nations, there is a drop of a bucket, and are counted as the small dust of the balance. Behold, he taketh up the isles as a very little thing. And then in verse 17, all nations before him are as nothing, and are counted to him less than nothing and vanity. Now, what does all this mean? Well, here we come face to face with something that the Bible always puts in the forefront of its teaching. The eternity and the power and the greatness of God. Before you begin to talk about God the Savior, you must start with God the Creator. Never leave out your Old Testament, my friends. Start with it. You'll never understand the new in a sense without the old. Here it is, in the beginning, God again created the heavens and the earth. God is the creator and the sustainer of everything that is. We all of us are in his hands. We live and move and have our being in God. So that you see, as you come to face these problems, and as you get on your knees in prayer, or as you think of your difficulties in life, and as you don't understand the history of today, and as you're on the point of saying things about God and asking your questions, and saying, why does God allow this, and why doesn't God do that? Wait for a moment and realize that you're going to express an opinion about that eternal, almighty, everlasting being who said, let there be light, and there was light and who formed and fashioned everything that is, who meted out the heavens with a span, who took the very waters in the hollow of his hand, as it were, and could weigh mountains in scales and the hills with his balances. Don't you begin to agree with what I'm saying? 
Isn't this our trouble? How lightly and glibly and loosely we all talk about God and express our opinions about God. And we say, God shouldn't do this. And why doesn't God answer my prayer? Why doesn't... My dear friends, I am indeed convinced that if we but had some dim and faint conception of the greatness and the majesty of God, like Job of old, we'd put our hands upon our mouth and we'd stop speaking. The trouble with us is that we don't realize that it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. We talk because we don't realize that the very nations of the world are as grasshoppers before God. That all these great nations with their might and their tanks and their armies and their atomic and their hydrogen bombs and all their great schemes, what are they? Well, they're nothing but this to God, you know. You've emptied the dust that is on your balance in order to get it clean, to get an accurate measurement, but there's just a little speck left, that's it. Or you've poured the water out of the bucket, you think you've poured it all out, there's a little drop left, that's the nations. A drop in the bucket. The greatness and the might and the majesty of God. Look at nature, look at creation. Consider as he tells you the mountains and the hills and the valleys and the sea. Look at the so-called laws of nature. Where have they come from? God has placed them all there. They're all the marks of his fingers. They're his handiwork. Look at the simplest flower. Look at an animal. Look at it all. The heavens declare the glory of God. And the firmament the same. Everything is a foretelling of the greatness and this majesty and might of God. Don't you see, my friends, that if we started with this, all our thinking would at once be revolutionized. It's because we've got into the habit of thinking of God as some sort of term to argue about, some conception, some idea with which we play in our philosophies and in our discussions on these matters. It's because we haven't taken off the shoes from off our feet and have realized that that God who made the world could blow upon us and cause us to vanish in a second, that we speak as we do and stumble as we do at his glorious salvation. We must, I say, come back and realize the truth as it's outlined in this book about the greatness and the might of God. But let me come to the second thing that the prophet mentions here, which is the transcendent glory of God. Listen to it in verse 16. And Lebanon, he says, is not sufficient to burn, nor the beasts thereof sufficient for a burnt offering. What's he talking about? Well, Lebanon, you remember, was a great mountain. A great mountain that was particularly famous for its forest. There were certain great cedars growing in Lebanon the most mighty, marvelous trees that the world knew. These great cedars of Lebanon, these mighty forests that rose up as it were to the very heavens. This is what he's saying, that Lebanon is not sufficient to burn. In other words, he says, if you cut down all the cedars of Lebanon, all those mighty trees, and you chop them up into wood and put them there as piles and lit them, ready to offer up a sacrifice of what? All the beasts 
of Lebanon likewise, all the animals that lived on Lebanon. He says that all this together would not be sufficient as a burnt offering to present to God. And that is just his way of saying, you see, in his own poetic imagery, that the glory of God is something so marvelous and so transcendent that all our highest thoughts and categories are never adequate and sufficient to express it. I've been talking about the greatness of God, but after all, I gather from the scriptures that God's peculiar and most essential attribute and characteristic is his glory. And the glory of God is something that can't be put into words. We are told this about him, that he dwelleth in light which no man can approach unto, which no man hath seen nor can see, to whom be honor and power everlasting. Now, my friends, you and I have been singing hymns about God tonight, and I've led you in prayer to God. Do you realize that that's the person we've been speaking to? That's the one in whose presence we are at this moment. He dwelleth in the light that no man can see nor approach unto, the light that is unapproachable because of its transcendent glory. Listen to these biblical terms. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. What is the gospel? The gospel is the glorious gospel of the blessed God. What is the function, the purpose of the gospel? It's this. To reveal the knowledge and the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. What is Jesus Christ? Well, this is what the author of the epistle to the Hebrews tells us about him, that he is the express image of God's person and the effulgence of the glory of God. The apostle John says, we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Oh, I know, my dear friends, that I'm attempting the impossible when I try to describe the glory of God. It can't be described. No man hath seen God at any time. No man could see God and remain alive. Why? Well, because of the glory, God is a consuming fire. His glory, His holiness, His purity, His ineffability. And I'm holding it before you for this selfsame reason. Men and women say, why do you have to preach about the death of Christ on the cross? Why do you have to keep on preaching that doctrine of sin? Why do you have to say that there must be this blood offering? Why do you say that Christ had to die? They say, I don't understand this. I want to be blessed of God, but I can't accept all that. My dear friend, your whole trouble is that you know nothing about the glory of God. You see, the glory of God is as great as this, that if you could cut down all the forests of the very world itself and kill all its beasts and offer them all together to God, it wouldn't be enough. The problem of sin is really the problem of the being of God. Don't think of sin in terms of yourself primarily and of what you do and what you don't do. If you want to understand the problem of sin, you start with God. You see, the trouble with all of us is that we start with sins, don't we? We say drunkenness, of course, a sin. Adultery, a sin. 
stealing thefts, sins, we say. And yet then the result is, do you see, that some of us, because we are not guilty of those things and never have been, we say we really don't know what this uh, sin question means. And we don't see why we need to repent. We've been brought up in a religious atmosphere and we've always gone to a place of worship. We say, we can't really say that we are sinful. What does Charles Wesley mean by saying, vile and full of sin I am? I don't really feel like that many a person has actually said to me. They say, we don't really feel it. And we'd be dishonest, we'd be hypocritical if we said that we were sinners. We don't feel we're sinners. We've never done such things. There's only one reason why people speak like that. And that is because they're tragically ignorant of the glory of God. Do you remember what happened to this prophet Isaiah when he had even a vision of God? He said, I am a man of unclean lips. I'm undone. Take others who've had visions of God. They've all said the same thing. They've fallen to the ground. Oh, if we had but some conception of the glory and the holiness of God, my friends, we would realize that that is the explanation of this question and this problem of sin. Dare I put it in such language? God is hemmed in by his own holiness. Is that going too far? It isn't. James has rarely said it. God neither tempteth any men, neither can he be tempted. That's the one thing God cannot do. God's holiness makes it impossible. And God is holy and just and righteous in all his everlasting and eternal glory. And I say that God as such must deal with the problem of sin. He can't pretend he hasn't seen it. He can't wink at it. He can't say it isn't there. He can't say, very well, I'll take no notice of it and I'll forgive. God, because of his glory, his holiness, his justice, his righteousness, must eternally ever always be consistent with himself. He is the father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow cast by turning. And what Isaiah is saying in his prophecy is this. There is only one offering that is adequate to such a God. It isn't Lebanon with all its cedars. It isn't all the beasts, the cattle, the cattle on, the, on a thousand hills. It isn't all the beasts of the world. They'd never be enough. Not the blood of bulls and of goats. It isn't enough. There is only one, and that is the one that he himself has offered. It is his own son, the express image of his person, the brightness of his own glory, his own pure, holy, glorious son. He offered himself, and God said it was enough. I'm simply pleading with you, my friend, if you're in trouble about this question of the Lord's Supper, 
which reminds us of the death of Christ and it leads us into its meaning and its significance and its mystery. If you say, I don't like this blood idea and this expiation, I say, don't start on the philosophical level, don't start with yourself, go right away back, go to the ultimate, go to God and realize how these men who I say have come anywhere near him have almost died at the presence of his glory. And remember how his only begotten son when he was here in this life and in this world addressed him always as Holy Father. Remember that he said that he had revealed the glory of God to men, that he'd glorified him amongst men. He revealed them in the truth concerning him and that is precisely the whole function and purpose of the gospel. Very well then, there I say are these two great characteristics the might and the majesty and the power of God, and then his transcendent glory. And thirdly and lastly, I merely mention it tonight, as the result of these two things, the inscrutability of the ways of God. For my thoughts are not as your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. The inscrutability of the ways of God. You see, it's because again we fail to grasp that that we're in trouble over the gospel and stumble at its doctrines, isn't it? We say, but I don't understand this. And I can't really grasp that. My dear friend, the very fact that you say that shows that your whole attitude is wrong. As you come to this gospel, you must start with this presupposition. That it is something entirely from God. It is God's plan. It is God's way. It is God's doing. It is God's method. So you must start and be prepared for surprises. Expect the miraculous. Expect the inexplicable. Expect the breaking in of the eternal into time. Expect things that stagger you and astonish you. Yes, speak with Mary and say, how can these things be? And back the answer will come, with God nothing shall be impossible. You see, he's God the creator. He's the God who made the world and who sustains it. Nothing with him shall be impossible. But you say, why must there be a death upon a cross? The answer is still the same. The glory of God makes his ways inscrutable. There is nothing in a sense in the gospel that conforms to human understanding. It's entirely different. It's as far as the heavens are from the earth. That's the, the comparison which is used by this very prophet. So as you come and look at these various doctrines of the Christian faith, my friend, you will begin to realize that the Lord Jesus Christ was but interpreting Isaiah in a sense when he said, except he be converted and become as little children, he shall in no wise enter into the kingdom of God. That's what he said, wasn't it? They wanted to understand, he said, give it up. 
You've got to feel that you're like a little child. You're going to look into God's plan, God's scheme, God's way. Oh, be prepared for the impossible. Stand uh, like a child, if you like, with your mouth open and your hands up and say, what is this? Marvel, miracle it is. And the pooled understanding of the whole of humanity is but as nothing. The nations are like a drop of the bucket, the small dust of the balance, vanity, and even less than vanity, just nothing at all. Oh, that we became as little children. Oh, that we saw and recognized this, that we said we are confronted by this almighty, glorious God. And there is nothing to do but to put our hands upon our mouth and to fall prostrate before him and to worship him and to say, Speak. Thy servant is ready to listen. Had you realized something of the truth about God, my friend? Did you know that you were a sinner? A vile sinner? That's the way to know it. Just try to picture yourself standing in the presence of God. And you'll soon begin to say, Eternal light, eternal light. How pure the soul must be that placed within thy searching sight it shrinks not, but with calm delight can live and look on thee. Oh, how can I, whose native sphere is dark, whose mind is dim, before the ineffable appear, and on my naked spirit bear that uncreated being? And believe me, if you've never felt that and realized its truth, you've never seen the need of Jesus Christ as your Savior, and you're still in your sins. He came to save you at that point. Not to make you feel happy. Not to say you've taken your decision now and all is well. Not at all. He came, he died to bring us to God. And that's the God he brings us to. And as you realize that you're nothing in his presence, you'll be glad to hear what the hymn goes on to say. There is a way for men to rise, yes, to that sublime abode. Sublime abode. What is it? An offering and a sacrifice? A Holy Spirit's energies, an advocate with God. If there were not such an advocate... I dare not stand in this pulpit. I dare not mention the name. I understand the ancient Jews. They had such a conception they didn't even mention the name Jehovah. They knew something of the glory of it all. But we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ the righteous. These, these prepare us for the sight of holiness above. The sons of ignorance and night. That's me and you shall dwell, can dwell, in the eternal light, through the eternal love. Start with God.
the greatness, the glory, the inscrutability of his marvelous, wonderful, gracious ways. Amen. We do hope that you've been helped by the preaching of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. All of the sermons contained within the MLJ Trust Audio Library are now available for free download. You may share the sermons or broadcast them. However, because of international copyright, please be advised that we are asking first that these sermons never be offered for sale by a third party. And second, that these sermons will not be edited in any way for length or to use as audio clips. You can find our contact information on our website at mljtrust.org. That's mljtrust.org.